Hello and welcome to another episode of NICE Talks. I'm Matthew Brown, a member of NICE's media team. In this episode, we're going to be talking about how NICE's rapid COVID-19 guidelines were produced and the role of evidence-based guidelines during an infodemic. I'll be joined by Fiona Glenn, NICE's Programme Director in the Centre for Guidelines, and David Chandler, Chief Executive of the Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis Alliance. Welcome both. Fiona, can you tell us how NICE went about creating its COVID-19 rapid guidelines? March 2020 saw NICE and especially the Centre for Guidelines really turn uh, its processes on ahead of a pin really. We had to move from producing guidelines in anything that we've been doing in the past from about six months to two years to overnight producing three guidelines within a week. We really had to radically transform not only the way that we did things but also in the knowledge that there was no evidence out there at the time. There was nothing really to help us start to write recommendations for frontline practitioners in the time of this huge peak that we saw in the first wave. So overnight, we had to really bring together rapidly frontline practitioners working on the condition, both in primary and secondary care, and bring them together to answer key questions which were needed around that time in the first wave, which was how to treat the condition, how to treat other conditions in the context of the pandemic, and how to really transform services and settings in order to allow uh, practitioners to work in a safe environment. Thank you. And Fiona, can you explain to our listeners what it was like back in March 2020 to be working at NICE and also explain the role our stakeholders played in forming the COVID-19 rapid guidelines? Well, it really was a case of all hands to the pump. The whole of NICE reprioritised its portfolio, so that wasn't just in guidelines, but it was across in technology appraisals and, and other functions within the organisation. And what we had to do, essentially, was to focus on those topics that were a priority at that time and to use any spare capacity to work on COVID guidelines. And actually, over the first 10 weeks, when we produced over about 25 guidelines, we used pretty much 50% of the organisation, moving staff in and out to stop burnout, really not just to produce guidelines and to bring practitioners together, but also to work with others outside the organisation who were also trying to achieve the same goal as everyone at that time and the same goal that everyone is still trying to achieve, which was how to treat this condition and how to support patients and the general public in dealing uh, with the pandemic. We worked closely with the Royal Colleges, with other government departments and other health bodies. We worked closely with, you know, all these frontline practitioners that I've talked about, with our patient groups, really, to understand what the particular issues were. Um, And we had to produce the content really very quickly, updating it whenever we found uh, the new emerging evidence to point us in a a different direction. But of course, that was the first 10 to 12 weeks. We then really had to look at the content that we produced and, and really start to mainstream it into the everyday work that we were doing. We had to bring online the other work that we deprioritized. And we had to start dealing with this mushrooming evidence base of of mixed quality in order to start to look at how to actually manage and treat acute COVID at that time. Another emerging condition, we started to hear about uh, the term long COVID and long-term effects of COVID. And as the pandemic progressed, we realised that we needed to define what this emerging condition of long COVID was in order to start looking at how to treat it. 
So our work still continues and our, our stakeholder contacts have, have grown and grown and grown over those years. And very much we've moved into an international global perspective where we work with international partners such as the World Health Organization and the Australian COVID National Task Force. So it really has been a case of working really with people around the world to try and bring new drugs and new therapeutics to this condition as soon as possible. David, my next question is for you. Can you tell us how you were involved with NICE's rapid COVID-19 guidelines? We were approached by NICE very early on in the, the lockdown around helping to develop the rapid guidelines. In particular, we were approached about the dermatological conditions that were treated with immune response drugs and psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, the conditions that we deal with, are both immune-mediated diseases. So many people are being treated with drugs that suppress the immune system, which obviously is of concern to patients when you have a virus that is likely to trigger an immune response. If you have a suppressed immune system, as you do with both of these conditions, um, then you would be particularly susceptible to maybe not being able to respond to that rapid growth of a virus. So NICE approached us very early on. I think after the, the lockdown in March, about a week or so later, we received a call from NICE asking if we'd be interested in helping and reviewing the rapid guidance which, of course, given our long association with the organisation, we were very happy to, to do. And the bit of the sting in the tail was that it needed to be done within one day, which, again, we're, we're capable of doing. We were able to do that, and we were very happy to do so. And we received the document in the morning, and we had to return it by 3pm in the afternoon with comments, which obviously is a short turnaround. But given the circumstances at the time, it's fully understandable that action needed to be taken quickly. And we were very pleased to be able to do that and provide what we thought would be useful comments against the advice being given to patients, particularly given the, the rapid change in the advice that was out there of what to do, staying at home, avoiding contact, and how we, we were supposedly going to deal with this, this condition, virus that was coming out, we felt was very important to get involved with. And David, what were the insights you were able to offer which you didn't hear other experts talking about? As an organisation that represents people with lived experience of disease, we were able to give that day-to-day -day lived experience, what people's fears were, what their concerns were, and what they needed to know. There's often a problem where there's a, a lot of technical science data that comes out that people say doesn't apply to me. And as an organisation, we speak to people, and particularly in the very early days, our calls on our helplines absolutely went bananas. We were receiving lots of calls of lots of people. Their main fear was, what does it mean to me? I've got a condition, how am I going to deal with this? The information that's been given out doesn't appear to apply to me. You know, I have to treat my condition, how am I going to continue to treat it? What should I do? So our insight is very much those fears, misunderstandings, the phobias that people have around whether they are going to be able to manage the condition. We feel that we've got a vast, wide experience, not just over those months of the early days of the virus, but also previously concerns that people had about accessing therapy, who to speak to. So we can give that lived experience, the real world data that possibly isn't necessarily captured in quantitative data, the research data that often is used for most decisions. Qualitative data, lived experience, is what we can provide that perhaps isn't easily readily available through other sources. Thank you. 
And Fiona, how difficult has it been for NICE to produce evidence-based guidelines when at the start of the pandemic there was so little information being published compared to where we are now, where lots of evidence exists? How does NICE sift out the poor quality evidence? It's been a a very interesting journey for anyone that produces guidance or indeed manages evidence and curates evidence in the first place, even for academics who publish it. It's it's been a a difficult time in a way in understanding what quality is out there. And the journey of evidence was one that we saw in front of our eyes and that, you know, in the first few weeks, there was nothing out there. There were case reports coming out of Wuhan and China at the time, but actually on the ground, there was very little evidence and practitioners were really just having to use their best judgment in order to really manage COVID. We were conscious of limited information at the start, but we drew on experiences within the UK to draw up best practice guidelines. And as the evidence has emerged, we've used our standard methodology really to apply good judgment and quality assessments to evidence and taken that to our panels so that they can update the recommendations. That's not to say that the system isn't sometimes flawed, and we've seen that with key publications that have been withdrawn over time. And I think that's become possibly more apparent in this pandemic. Maybe it's because more eyes are focused on these particular key pieces of literature as they emerge. I don't really know, but there certainly have been some failings around academic peer review papers um, in the past. And, and hopefully NICE's application, its methodology to these sorts of information means that we will always be aware of any issues that come forward. Turning back to you, David, can you explain how your charity got the right information to the right people at the right time? And can you also explain how NICE's guidelines played their part? Information at the beginning of the pandemic was obviously very sketchy once we started to receive calls. And they were often questions that we didn't have access to the answers. So instead of speculating or offering people incorrect information or pointing them to the wrong sources, we felt that it was very important to seek definitive advice from correct scientific sources. We reached out to the professional bodies. So in the case of our disease, it would have been the British Association of Dermatologists and also the British Society for Rheumatology. And both of those organisations started to pull together some very definitive information, which we felt, given that they were healthcare professionals, that they were dealing frontline with people, was the best source initially for us to point people towards. And we set up a frequently asked questions COVID virus page on our website to put these links and then gradually update them. We decided that we wouldn't replicate the data. What we would do is always point people towards the original source. And that included the NICE guidance and much of the NICE back catalogue of information that could also be used. The idea then is that people go to the original source. It's not been diluted. It's not been changed. And if it's being updated, it's being updated by the source. But as questions came in, we started to source from other sources around the world. So we felt that if we could source and point people towards those, that would give them the first course, and we would only go to institutions and credible sites. The campaign of this year's World Evidence-Based Healthcare Day explores the role of evidence in an infodemic. An infodemic is defined as too much information, including false or misleading information in digital and physical environments during a disease outbreak. David, what was the advice you were offering to the people who use your charity so they could avoid being duped into believing inappropriate and incorrect online content? 
It's a real problem with people getting incorrect information from poor sources. I guess the piece of advice I would give people is always check the original source. If it's from something that has a reputation for providing good information over a number of years, such as a charity or a NICE or any agency that is driven by rules and regulations that make sure that they are liable and responsible for what they say, that would be the best piece of advice. Try to avoid rapid advice from people who have no track record of providing relevant information, particularly through things like social media, where people will hear something from somebody and then repeat it with no evidence whatsoever. Everything needs evidence, everything needs a source and everything needs tracking back to a responsible person who will take reasonable um, steps to make sure the device they are providing is A, evidence-based and follows the protocols that apply to evidence-based. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nice Talks. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to click subscribe to keep up to date with our monthly podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram with the handle at NiceComs. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.